it used to be that a lot of television criticism was written the day after something aired. That's Matt zoller sites. He's a TV critic for New York Magazine and the editor-at-large of RogerEbert.com. He's been writing about TV for a while. Technically, I've been doing this for 22 years now. A few decades ago, TV was appointment viewing. And if you wanted to watch a particular show, you found out when it aired, and that's when you watched it. And if it came on at 8 p.m. on Thursday night, you had to sit down in front of the TV at 8 p.m. Thursday night. And if you missed it, you could see it again three to six months later when they reran it, and you had to be sitting in front of the television at 8 o'clock on Thursday night, because that's how they rolled. It sounds positively prehistoric. I, I tell my children about, about what it was like watching television when I grew up, and they're horrified. They're absolutely, it's like, it's like I'm describing like having to live on the tundra and, like, eat shoots and leaves. How did you do it, Dad? And then along came Netflix. And Netflix changed everything. For millions of households, it replaced the old-fashioned cable bundle for a fraction of the price. It replaced appointment TV, catch Grey's Anatomy at 8 p.m., with anytime TV. And it's led a revolution in streaming that now spans HBO, Amazon Prime, Hulu, and pretty soon Disney. Now, I've always thought about this as a pretty good thing. Thousands of shows and movies available anytime with the click of a remote or smartphone? What could possibly be wrong with that? But lately, I've noticed more and more criticisms of Netflix. The arguments go something like this. First, Netflix initially felt like a lively addition to the entertainment world. But now people worry that it's a substitution, that it's contributing to the slow demise of the movie industry. Like, why go out when there's so much to see at home? Second, a lot of people were initially excited about the idea that Netflix would use its all-powerful data to transform TV with brave programming like Orange is the New Black. But today, critics say, it's just bankrolling more generic schlock, like Adam Sandler comedies designed to keep our eyes glued to the screen for as long as possible. And Matt? He's a little skeptical, too. I love Netflix in the way that I love the United States of America, which is to say, I have issues. This is the last episode of our third season, Unbreak the Internet. In the last few weeks, we focused on several controversial consequences of new technology. Surveillance, radicalization, pornography, AI in the criminal justice system. Netflix, by comparison, might seem totally harmless. But one of the big lessons of this season is that no technology is what it seems. There is always bad with the good. So we're ending this season with a question. How has Netflix changed the way television is made and watched? And what does it mean for us? For The Atlantic, I'm Derek Thompson. This is Crazy Genius. If you look at my Tom 10 list in any given year, there's always going to be more than one Netflix show in there. When Netflix was founded in 1997, it changed the game by mailing DVDs directly to your door. 22 years later, it's a streaming giant that produces hundreds of original shows and movies in 190 countries for about 150 million viewers. Netflix has made it easier to watch TV and to review TV. And Matt admits, it's just made some darn good stuff. 
I think they've done fantastic work. Like, you know, they helped restore a lost Orson Welles film. Along with Amazon, they're keeping alive the tradition of the mid-budget adult feature film, you know, like the kind of things that I used to see 13 times at the Inwood Theater when I was a teenager in Dallas. The only places that are really financing those on any kind of a meaningful level are Netflix and Amazon at this point. And I'm grateful for that. Nevertheless, Matt's got issues. There's a wonderful play called Inherit the Wind. And towards the end of it, the Clarence Darrow character is cross-examining the William Jennings Bryan character. And he talks about the difference between uh, reason and faith. And he says, you know, basically, when the fairy tale is dispelled, it hurts a little bit. Progress has never been a bargain. You have to pay for it. All right, you can have a telephone, but you lose privacy and the charm of distance. And he says, mister, you may conquer the air, but the birds will lose their wonder. And the clouds will smell of gasoline. There's always a good side and a bad side to progress. You know, that's the point of it. And I think that's, you know, that's what we've got as a result of the streaming revolution. And it's frankly, it's what we have with every technological revolution. So when it comes to Netflix, what's the fairy tale and what's the stink of gasoline? Well, the fairy tale is that everything will be available at the touch of a button when you want it. And we will never have to own anything anymore. That'll all be just existing in the cloud. We'll have anything we want anytime we want it. The fairy tale is convenience. The stink is, well, convenience. In the last few years, several studies have found that having all this TV at our fingertips comes with some serious downsides. A study published in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine in 2017 found that, quote, higher binge viewing frequency was associated with poorer sleep quality, increased fatigue, and more symptoms of insomnia, whereas regular television viewing was not, end quote. Another paper in the Archives of Sexual Behavior found couples chilling on the couch watching all this Netflix might be contributing to that famous sex recession we talked about this season. Less sleep and less sex might sound bad enough, but Matt says there's an even deeper rewiring happening at the cultural level. Increasingly, there's a recency bias on Netflix for obvious financial reasons, which is that they want to own the things that are on there. And that means that older titles are being crowded out. And by old, I mean more than two years old is increasingly of less interest in the streaming universe. And as a result, I'm afraid that we're, you know, we're kind of losing our cultural memory. Netflix has about 6,000 titles available in the U.S., But when you and I log into Netflix, we don't see the same 6,000 films and TV shows listed in alphabetical order or anything like that. You and I don't even see the same homepage. We see a personalized menu of titles. That menu is curated by an algorithm that predicts what we'll want to watch based on our viewing history. Now, that might sound totally harmless to you, but Matt says... This algorithmic library changes so often and is so biased toward getting us to watch new stuff that it has the opposite effect of an old-fashioned library. It doesn't build cultural memory. It destroys it. I just am not a big fan of cultural amnesia. I don't like it, and increasingly I see it more and more. You know, for example, there was an article about horror movies not too long ago that was saying that such and such a recent horror movie was a revolutionary step forward for the genre because it dealt with grief. 
And I'm sitting there thinking, like, anybody who knows anything about horror movies, even in a cursory way, knows that this movie that came out this month is not the first horror film to deal with grief. Hmm. And it is only in a culture in which we are not only unaware of the history of an art form, but encouraged to be ignorant of it, that somebody can make a claim like that. You know, that an editor can let it pass and that it can be published. And I see it happening time and time again. When streaming television serves up a flood of new content, what's the downside? What's lost? Maybe it's a sense of history, an appreciation for what happened before 30 seconds ago. A friend recently asked me what my favorite TV show of all time was. Honestly, I couldn't think of anything I'd seen before 2018. It was all kind of lost in the flood. Also, maybe we lose the very idea of a shared cultural experience. 30 million people used to watch every episode of Friends at the same time in the 1990s. Today, 30 million people don't watch any TV show at the same time, not even Game of Thrones. Instead of a shared culture, it's a million little cults. This is the brave new world that we're in. This is the gasoline stink part of it. It's all so ephemeral. This is not just a Netflix thing. It's a streaming service problem. It's an internet problem. You know, increasingly, platforms like Amazon and Hulu and Netflix and YouTube, they're not thinking, what new stuff can we show you that will sort of expand your horizons and perhaps incidentally enable us to sell you an entirely new bunch of stuff that you didn't even know you wanted. Instead, they seem to be fixated on what do you already know you like and how can we give you more stuff like what you like. And the result is a culture of people who are not really interested in going to the theater unless it's to see a Marvel film or a Star Wars film or a Pixar film because they already know that they like it. We also lose a kind of serendipity. When there are algorithms designed to discover the world for us, maybe we lose the instinct to discover for ourselves. And I would like to see more attempts made to help people stumble upon things that are not necessarily dovetailing with the taste that the algorithm already knows that they have. Something like, I guess you would call it stumble upon culture. That's one thing that's gone missing that I think was very beneficial. Like, I stumbled upon Citizen Kane on Channel 13 when I was a little kid late at night. And I only knew that it was Citizen Kane at the very end when they threw the sled into the fire. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and there's not as many opportunities to do that. There's not as many opportunities when you're consuming the news to be turning from the front page of the newspaper through the front section and to happen upon a story from Honduras or Borneo or somewhere that you wouldn't normally pay attention to when you're heading to the editorial page. <laughs> If there's one big lesson we've learned from disruptive tech in the last few years, it's that, as Matt said, there is always a good side and a bad side to progress. On the one hand, Netflix has made watching TV easier. On the other hand, it's made watching TV easier. The strength and sin of streaming entertainment are the same. It's the promise of utter entertainment convenience even when it comes at the expense of our sleep, relationships, and appreciation for what the hell it is we're watching. We reached out to Netflix for comment. A spokesperson pointed out that the service accounts for only 10% of TV screen time in the U.S. today. 
That might make it hard to blame for broad societal trends. They added, quote, We take pride in being part of the cultural zeitgeist, but getting credit for a decades-long decline in sex is beyond even our programming abilities. End quote. The conversation thus far made me realize that the Netflix effect is really two very different effects. One, it's changed how consumers like you and I watch TV. But two, it's changed the entire entertainment industry itself. If you look at the numbers, all of the conventional wisdom that Hollywood has believed about what works and what doesn't is revealed to be all convention and no wisdom. Black films don't sell abroad. That's just not true, and it's never been true. We've heard from the critic. After the break, a view from inside the industry. We'll be right back. When I first arrived in Hollywood, it was 2003. That's Franklin Leonard. He's a Hollywood entrepreneur who's had a front row seat to the disruptive effect of Netflix. There were a lot of things that I would ask, why is it done this way? And the most frequent answer was some version of, well, because it is done that way. We're going to get back to Netflix in just a minute. But first, I think it's important to understand what Franklin thought was broken about Hollywood when he first arrived. So... When I was a junior executive, I may have read a script and I might have walked into my boss's office and said, I love this. This is really good. And then my boss asked me what it's about. I then have to answer if the script is Slumdog Millionaire. Well, it's about an Indian kid from the slums who goes on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire to track down a long lost love. And their initial reaction is going to be, you know what, get out of my office. In his early years in Hollywood, Franklin saw a lot of worthy screenplays being overlooked. You know, historically, the people who actually have the power to decide whether a movie gets made, it's a very small group of people. And that group of people is disproportionately white, disproportionately male, disproportionately older, disproportionately comes from upper middle class background, disproportionately cis, disproportionately heterosexual. And they believe that by virtue of their having ascended to the chair in which they sit, they understand better what audiences like than other people who may be closer in their day-to-day reality than the audiences they claim to be making content for. The status quo is leaving some of the best screenplays unproduced, some of the best stories untold. So Franklin took matters into his own hands. At the end of 2005, I sent an email to 75 of my peers, basically everyone that I had had breakfast, lunch, dinner, or drinks with that year, who had a job similar to mine, and I asked them to send me a list of up to 10 of their favorite unproduced screenplays. And in exchange for that, I would send them the combined list, which I sort of termed the blacklist, a simultaneous nod both to the writers who lost their careers during the Hollywood blacklist of the 40s, people like Dalton Trumbo, but also a conscious inversion of the notion that black somehow has a negative connotation, right? Like what if there was a blacklist people wanted to be on? He pressed send and went on vacation in December. When he came back, he checked his inbox. And it had been forwarded back to me dozens, if not hundreds of times. And it became a thing very quickly. 14 years later, The Blacklist is a powerful institution. Everybody in Hollywood knows it. It's a crowdsourced survey of what executives believe to be the best unproduced screenplays in Hollywood. 
decades ago, many of these screenplays would have never become films. But today... If you look at uh, the 1,200 scripts that have been on the list, about a third of them have been produced. They've made over $26 billion in worldwide box office. They've won 50 Oscars from over 275 uh, Oscar nominations, including a third of the last dozen best pictures and 10 of the last 24 screenwriting Oscars. Slumdog Millionaire and Selma, Spotlight, Argo, The King's Speech, many movies surfaced by the blacklist are now part of the 21st century canon. Now, we can't take credit for that necessarily, but we can take credit for having created a system that allows the industry to identify talent with that level of regularity far before the movie even has its first day of production. The Blacklist showed what can happen when you build a disruptive tool that takes power away from the old-fashioned gatekeepers and challenges assumptions about what people want to watch and how. This finally brings us back to Netflix. For Franklin, the most radical part of Netflix isn't their technology, it's their business model. I think what's fascinating about Netflix is that there are different financial and economic pressures on them when it comes to which movies they make. So if you're at a traditional studio, the pressures that you're feeling are, we have to make movies that make a ton of money opening weekend, and that can justify the expense of keeping these movies in theaters for as long as possible, and then hopefully extracting more value from them in post-theatrical markets. But Netflix isn't like that. It doesn't sell tickets to individual events. Instead, for as low as $8.99 a month in the U.S., subscribers get total access to thousands of titles. Netflix just needs to make enough content that the people who are paying their subscription don't wake up one morning and say, wait a minute, why am I paying for Netflix again? Sounds simple enough. But Franklin says that what Netflix is doing is subtly profound. Its ambition isn't just to replace one TV channel or another. It's to be television. All of it. Every channel. Every taste. For every age, ethnicity, and country. To fill every niche. Netflix's bias is we want to maximize the amount of time that you spend on our platform, period. So we want to keep you addicted to the stuff that you're going to like. But the stuff that we don't know if you're going to like or we think you're not going to like is still available on the platform. It's a very different set of economic pressures, which results in a very different decision-making process and a very different bag of goods that you're going to generate. And Franklin says that this business model has led directly to more diverse entertainment. And I think what's been really fascinating about Netflix is that they've leaned aggressively into presenting a wide variety of diverse entertainment. That's the content that I'm most interested in watching, whatever that is, right? And I think we've been blessed that we can see things like Beasts of No Nation and Roma and Dear White People and Orange is the New Black. And I actually think that over time, we're gonna see a lot of fascinating content that will very much live up to what people consider the high watermarks of television over the last 20 years. But Franklin says that diversity today is not a guarantee of diversity tomorrow. We've seen media companies before lean heavily into diversity early in their sort of life cycle and then shift as soon as they get to the table. I mean, I I can't think of another network except maybe HBO that would have given Ava DuVernay the proper financing to do the Central Park Five series in the way that she wanted to do it. Matt Zoller cites again. There's no question that they've been a force for good on that front. In terms of getting the shows made, 
Matt agrees that Netflix has made impressive strides in diversity. But like Franklin, he's seen media companies go down this road before. The first one that I noticed doing this was the Fox Broadcasting Network 30 years ago. The WB Network and UPN, which eventually merged to form the CW, each of them were at a certain point known as the great place for creators of color, and that was what they built a lot of their schedule around. And after a certain point, when they reached a certain level of success, they gentrified, and you saw a lot fewer of those kinds of shows. Matt thinks Netflix may gentrify in the same way. It might already be happening. They'll throw, you know, millions and millions of dollars at somebody like David Letterman or Jerry Seinfeld, whose comedians and cars getting coffee is essentially a record of the 1% leisure class. Like it's, it's just segment after segment of some of the richest people in the country driving around in expensive vintage cars and talking about their money. You know, so like, let's not kid ourselves here. The question remains, will Netflix do the same thing? I've noted publicly on a few occasions that their first four major Oscar campaigns were from filmmakers who were either men of color or women of color. Their Oscar campaign in 2019 into 2020 is in all likelihood going to be Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Very different. Even so, Franklin remains optimistic that this time will be different. Not because Netflix isn't a profit-driven company, but because they're a profit-driven company. Look, I don't believe for a moment that Netflix is driven by a moral or cultural imperative to do this. I think that they are a highly data-driven company that looked at the data and said, this is what we should be making. And they've had a great deal of success with it. I think that diversity and inclusion is incredibly good for business. So I actually am not worried that Netflix is going to shift and make a bunch of sort of white male-driven action movies because that's what audiences want. Because I don't believe that's what audiences want. Netflix's bread and butter is data. And Franklin believes that data, well deployed, is a powerful weapon against decades of prejudice. If you look at the numbers, all of the conventional wisdom that Hollywood has believed about what works and what doesn't is revealed to be all convention and no wisdom. Right? Black films don't sell abroad. That's just not true, and it's never been true. Coming to America made hundreds of millions of dollars foreign. Big Mama's House 2, not exactly Moonlight, made $75 million outside of the U.S., more than comedies that made equivalent domestic box office outside of the U.S. that were white. Similarly, I was told when I suggested at a job that we should acquire the manuscript for Hunger Games. Female-driven action does not work. I don't know where that came from. I suspect that it came from a male assumption about the delicate sensibilities of women. But Hunger Games did quite well. Wonder Woman did quite well. Captain Marvel did quite well. Data benefits the people that have the talent. And right now, there are a lot of people who have talent who have been part of marginalized communities and haven't had a chance to show it. Both Franklin and Matt are fighting for the same thing an entertainment industry that is worthy of us, the viewers, that is as diverse as we are, that reflects the rich traditions and cultures we have built. I think that what we're seeing is, is that what audiences want more than anything is something new while still being familiar, right? So Black Panther is not reinventing the wheel. It's still a superhero movie, but that was a very special superhero movie, especially if, like me, you're black. 
Crazy Rich Asians, pretty straightforward romantic comedy, but with people we've never seen before in places that we've never seen before. And so I think that if Netflix is desperately trying to attract the most eyeballs, you can't do it in the ways that we've always done it. I know that the people who made Bruce Willis movies want to believe that everyone can see themselves in Bruce Willis, but guess what? That's never been true. When people criticize Netflix, they often focus on the narcoleptic effect it can have on viewers. But that overlooks the role Netflix has played in empowering a new class of filmmakers. The question is whether they can keep it up. If there's been one big theme to this season of Crazy Genius, it's that all technology is a monkey's paw, a gift that also curses. Social media platforms broaden access to information, but they also fertilize extremism. Surveillance technology might make us feel more secure, but it also empowers the worst tendencies of the security state. Netflix may wield the same double-edged sword, Yes, it might be a stupefying time suck that traps us with its convenience, but it's also filled our lives with more entertainment for less money. It's given a voice to storytellers who were muffled by old prejudices, and it's connected people around the world with one global technology. That's not just an achievement worth watching. It's what the internet was supposed to be in the first place. Thank you for listening to season three of Crazy Genius. This show is produced by Patricia Jacob and Jesse Brenneman, with help from Kevin Townsend. David Herman is our engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this episode. Special thanks to Liz Pelly. Catherine Wells is the executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts. Adrian LaFrance is our executive editor. If you liked the season and still haven't rated or reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, please do so. I'm Derek Thompson. Thank you for listening.